Hello, Growth RX. I am Jade Scott. This is Growth RX. And today we are joined by, and here we go, James Schomburg, Silent C, Silent K. I got it right. Got it, Jade. <laughs> welcome, welcome, James, all the way from Adelaide, Australia. Now, we don't need to look very far when we're talking about musculoskeletal physiotherapy before your name pops up. What a privilege it is to have you talking to us 30 years as an educator, almost. I don't want to age yeah. you too much, but <laughs> almost 30 years. Welcome to Growth RX. It's great to introduce you to the community. Thanks, Jade. I'm really excited to be here and, and looking forward to the chat. Now, we've got, you've provided some slides for us today, which we'll get to in a minute, but we are going to cover the topic, which I think is really subjective for a lot of people, and that is how we teach and learn to be humble in work and in life, but particularly in a clinical setting. And that ties a lot back to mentoring. And I love a concept that I've heard you talk about before, and that is the learning mindset. So coupling being humble with that, obviously, continual growth as a professional. I, before we get going, I would just like to know from you, I guess, what, what's your definition of humble for those people watching at home? Yeah, and look, for me, it's simply always realising you don't know everything. For me, it's just always being fascinated by the opportunities you can get with each client you see and, and also from the peers around you. So if, really simply, it's just constantly realising how little you know. And when you're humble enough, I think, to actually realise that you develop a, a growth mindset, a learning mindset that actually allows you to continue to, to learn. Even I, you know, I, I've been a clinician, as she said, for 30 years now, and I'm still learning every day from my clients and from my staff and from colleagues and from mentors of my own. And I think that sort of willingness to understand that we still have a lot to learn really just holds you in good stead as a clinician, whether you're a new graduate or somebody as, as older and wizened as me. <laughs> <laughs> and I did think, you know, when I wanted to cover this topic and it was a, a post that had come up from a new graduate who was asking how we remain humble in a clinical setting and it got a lot of traction. So it was always a topic I wanted to cover. And, you know, I guess it's quite ironic in that I wanted you to join me for this discussion because you are quite humble and you never want to talk about yourself. So, I mean, before we get going, I mean, I know you are the founder of The Second Visit and you've been an educator and mentor for many, many years. But how did you find, I guess, that transition? I guess, tell us a bit more about what a typical day looks like for you moving across. Obviously, uh, you're a physiotherapist, but you moved across into education some time ago. What's, mm. what's that journey been like? For you and you know are you hands-on at all now and what you know what does your normal uh, professional career look like as we speak yeah look to me I've molded it to where I want it to be um way back in the late or mid 90s I got the first opportunity to teach and that was in the UK when I was working in the NHS over there and I only worked for a day and I got pulled aside by the head of the physio department at the hospital I was at in Surrey. And I thought I was going to get told off. Um, <laughs> you know, you should get called in on your second day. But she said, have you done your master's? And I said, yeah. And she said, um, you know, so why are you here as a physio? I said, what do you mean? She said, would you be interested? We think you're a wasted here. We should get you teaching, become the senior educator for the trust. 
Look, I was 25 and it was a bit of a shock to get asked when you're 25 to be a senior educator. I got even more shocked when I saw the hourly rate I was given. It was a lot more than I was given as a, as a senior two physio, I think I was called. Um, so I got the opportunity to be the educator for the whole trust um, in the west, west of Surrey and had a ball. Um, I, I, I found my whole family are teachers or accountants, bar me, and I said I'd never be a teacher. And there I was teaching and I um, ended up loving it. I didn't realise how much I'd love it. So that's where it started. And so I was always deciding by the time I'd reached my late 20s, I was realising, because I'm a very hands-on clinician, uh, especially back then I was, and I realised my thumbs weren't going to last the distance being a full-time clinician. So I thought, what am I going to do to prolong my career? Because I love it. But I didn't think when I got to my 40s that I'd be able to continue to do this. So I thought, education seems to be the way to go. So that's where it started. And I went through teaching at undergraduate level, postgraduate level, um, and then got asked more and more to, to run courses externally and loved it. And But I, I found the one thing that I got the most of and I was getting more and more calls was to actually help younger clinicians and teams of clinicians to, um, to, to actually better themselves. And I got not frustrated it's just the reality of teaching to university students is you only see them on the earliest part of their journey and so you you can't challenge them enough I didn't find I could challenge them enough to see the changes whereas when I started mentoring younger physios who are actually graduates I could see the rate of improvement just being massive and that's where I, I guess that's where I headed to was just um a love for, for teaching yeah. And the love for sharing knowledge, and that's where it all—that's where it led to where we are now. And you know, I've, I've seen over the years when we talk about humble, I saw over the years the physios who've ended up that I've been involved with teaching. The ones who've gone on to become stars in their own right are, were usually the ones. A common trait that I found was they were quite humble. Yeah, and I and you know it, you would have seen how generations have changed, how physiotherapy has changed, particularly. Mm. I've, I've seen you on quite a few podcasts of late talking about manual therapy. Manual therapy in itself has changed so much over the last 30 years. And one of the courses that you run through the second visit is that hands-on, which would have been really hard for you in COVID. I mean, how do you deliver a hands-on course when you can't do it face-to-face? Well, we've been lucky. Kieran Richardson and I have been teaching the manual therapy course. Uh, we've been able to avoid it, um, but we've reached a point where we've had to cancel so many. That I just cancelled our, literally while I was waiting for you, I just cancelled our Sydney conference, our Sydney workshop in November. So it's got harder and harder. I'm praying that early next year, once the borders start opening, uh, that we can start going across to Melbourne, Sydney and overseas where we're planning for it to run it next year. But it's been a challenge. There's no doubt it's been a challenge because manual therapy is, um, you know, it's it's got some really good evidence, but in the end, you've got to be good at it to actually competent at it to actually deliver a great outcome. You know, knowing evidence is one thing, but actually knowing being competent and delivering that evidence-based management is another. And, I, you know, that's what, I've, what I'm most passionate about is giving people hopefully skills to actually... Uh, the skills that go with no, reading journals and knowing the evidence, but actually applying that evidence in a real-time setting. Yeah. And for those people, particularly those wanting to go into private practice, manual therapy is part of your toolbox. Is it, I mean, for somebody like me 
who has an osteopathic background, we do so much hands-on work at the university. Is, are they still getting that, the students at the moment? Are they still getting hands-on experience and training at a university level or are they needing sort of that additional postgraduate work with somebody like a course like you said, like what you run? Yeah, I, look, I, I have noticed, as have all the graduates and even the physios who work with me, um, the standards of manual therapy and physio have diminished dramatically in the last five, 10 years, and it's increasingly deteriorating. That's, that is, it's still being taught at university level, but the amount that's getting taught is reducing and the quality of the teachers at times is diminishing too in that area because there's a lot of push away from what some people call passive treatments. And I'd argue manual therapy, if it's done applied with a with a you know current best practice, is not passive at all. Um, but it's being seen that way, and certainly there's a lot of other influences outside of universities which are also having a fairly negative effect on you know physios and not just physios, osteopaths um, particularly as well. I see there's a lot of pressure for them to be less and less uh, hands on. I guess it, it would be hard because you are seeing these changes and you are seeing that they're getting that less application of manual therapy. So this notion of being humble when you've got students coming out with different evidence base to support what they do, it's really hard to, I guess, implement that learning mindset and that growth mindset to understand that there were some physiotherapists or osteopaths doing it for decades beforehand and now things are starting to change so this topic of remaining humble and continuing to learn I think is really important to deliver right now and I know you've put together a couple of slides for us particularly on what matters and where the foundations of this start so I might hand over to you now to do a little bit of screen sharing and I'll scribble away some notes yeah, sure. and come back to you with some <laughs> questions because I do I'm I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this learning mindset. Sure. Now just sorry just gotta get to that right one. So that should be coming up on the screen Jade. Yep we can see that. Yep. So I'll just go back to the previous slide just really quickly. Um so I as I was talking about before I found you know, mentoring um, when I was actually able to impact clinicians rather than grad, rather than students, I could see the change because we worked with them longer and we could see a sudden increase in, uh, a dramatic increase in patient visit average PVA. But very quickly, I found out that knowledge, clinical knowledge is what a lot of uh, clinicians, I think, think is the gap like it, when I know more, I'll become a better physio or a better osteopath or a better chiropractor. And clinical knowledge, there's no doubt there are gaps. But I didn't, what I did see was that was an issue, but it wasn't as big an issue as I thought. Clinical pattern recognition, like looking at seeing patterns and recognizing was also an issue. Clinical reasoning was also an issue. Choosing the best options based on the best, on best practice was an issue communicating how to communicate with your clients was as well planning your treatment like setting up a really good treatment plan was also an issue but the reason i'm glancing over all of those is i found they went none of those seem to be the biggest issue because a lot of those things are taught at university 
and you can read those in journals you can read those in books you can actually get some you'll get some evolution of of you'll just by growth by just time a lot of these things will improve but the biggest issue i found was this and i, I find this constantly was being humble and realizing you don't know as much as you think you do now I, I think most clinicians that I deal with young ones, particularly because I mentor them all the time, thankfully understand how little they know. I think, and that, that is probably the first step. If you think you know it all, then you probably should be leaving the profession, in my opinion, because you, your mindset is not going to be of a, of a growth mindset after. Whereas if you stay humble, and say, look, I still don't know it all. And I remember when I did my master's back in 95, I honestly thought before I did it, once I did my master's, I was going to be an amazing clinician. In fact, I, you know, because the people who taught me were world famous in our profession. Um, and I thought, once I know it, once I get that point, I'm going to know it all. And I remember the first day of my master's, we had Jeff Maitland, who was really the father of manipulation and mobilization and physiotherapy in the world. And he taught, he taught us in the last year and he said, you're going, to, you're going to realize how little you do know by the end of the year. And he was so right. At the end of that 12, 18 months of doing my master's, I realized how, little, how much more I still had to learn. And in fact, that excited me that I could keep learning. And I think that is the message I'd give to any young clinician is keep, keep getting excited, keep looking at what you can add your knowledge to and, and don't always be focused on journals. That, that's fantastic to do that, but you're going to get so much more from doing some of the things that I, that I see great clinicians do, the ones that I mentor. The ones that I mentor, you know, they seek second opinions. But, you know, if you're in a clinic that has more than one other clinician, getting them to come in and work with you. And I think there's a lot of fear that, the client in front of you, the patient in front of you is going to be thinking less of you for getting another clinician in with you. But in fact, every time that happens, I think it, I've ne it always works the opposite. They love that getting a second opinion. They actually value you more by the fact that you're actually trying to help them as much as they can. Learn from others too. Learn from other clinicians. Learn from... Um, learn from your mentor, like goal setting, goal setting, setting goals with your clients is something that isn't taught well, certainly in physiotherapy at school, maybe in osteopathic school, but it's certainly not taught well in physio school, but it's such a critical one. Um, and challenge you to think about your own philosophy. You know, I think you need to really sit down sometimes and have um, work out what sort of clinician do you want to be? I learned very quickly. I didn't want to be a clinician who just treated pain. You know, somebody who just tried to help the client with their journey to reduce their pain as quickly as possible. Now, all clients want that. But I also wanted to stop them coming back to see me. I've, I've got a mindset is what can I do to help prevent re-injury? What can I do to actually help prevent recurrence? And that became my philosophy and my mantra. And so whenever I see a client, that is what the mindset I go in with. And when you have that mindset, it changes the way you look at each client that you see. And I think one of the hardest things is to, is to work out what sort of physio, clinician, osteopath you'd like to be. And I think getting a good mentor, and a mentor can be a formal mentor or an informal mentor. It can be 
the practice owner with you or a more senior clinician or somebody external. Um, but as you're working out what sort of clinician do you want to be seen as and actually use, use that to create your learning philosophy as well. The, I, I think that the things that I, for me, and I think the other thing too that I always would say, and this is what still excites me, is learning from your clients. Your clients, every client, if you see them, not only to help your goals, to help them, but actually use them for the mindset is how can me seeing this client help me to become a more wise, better clinician too. It really does help you because the clients, they know themselves better than anybody else and you can learn so much from your clients. And, um, you know, I've got some, it depends on time, but I've got a case study that really, for me, um, made me realise even now where if we don't, if we just go by what we think of the journals and the books, what do they say, and not listen to your clients, then and this is a part of Humble that I think is critical. If you don't listen to your clients, you're often going to miss the real gems that are not only going to help that individual client, but are going to help you in the future with other clients. So I don't know whether you want me to talk about that now, Jade, or whether that's something we talk about later on. The you case that I'll let you continue with your slides and then definitely I'll, I'll flag it to come back to that because I'd, sure. I'd love to hear about that case. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is the, some of the things I, I, I see and I, I've put this out as a challenge in another group that I've seen often in interviews. And so this is even pre-employment. Often the best people I've actually recruited to become some of my best clinicians are those that even in the interview process appear to be humble. Now, I always want to make sure that I say humble isn't weak sign of weakness. It's, to me, it's a sign of strength. And little things like if, I'm, if they're asking questions, coming in prepared with questions, actually having them written down, having also writing down answers and asking, they usually do the good ones, ask if it's okay to do this. Um, one of the other things I found just before I leave about the pre-employment, particularly interview, is this is a, a one that I learned, and I can't remember who told me this, but it was a great one that I've used for years. And I've done it intentionally in the interviews is I've left a glass of water or tea or coffee, depending on which they wanted in the interview. And I've left it on the desk. Even if they said, no, nah, look, I don't, I'm fine. I don't need to drink because often they're too embarrassed to say they want one. Is I've actually put, I've at least put a, a glass of water there for them. A, a humble clinician, one that actually puts them, uh, sees, sees the role as not being the pinnacle. I have found at the end of the interview, every time I've had a great clinician, every time they've said, oh, look, where would you like me to take with that glass of water? Where would you like me to take that cup of tea? Rather than just leaving it there, it's a really interesting tool. I got taught that many years ago, as I said, and it's really served me well. Just to see what they do with it at the end. You know, would they ask, where can I put it? Can I put it away for you? That to me is a sign of being humble. Um, and what do I see also once they're actually clinicians is they're the ones who ask the most questions because they've got an inquisitive mind. They realize they don't know it at all. They're not afraid to bring case studies to the, to the group. We do, the mentoring I do with large teams is every, um, every week we go through case studies and best clinicians, the ones who've got 
the busiest lists, the ones who've got the highest PVAs, invariably are the ones who bring the case studies to the group. They know they don't know it all, so they're looking for support from the group to actually help them get better results with their clients. And you can see them. I, I mentor a very senior group up in Queensland, and this group, um, one of the clinicians is the second in charge of the whole practice. And he brings it to, and he's writing down the responses furiously. And even better, he comes back to me the next week when we do our mentoring and said, look, I've, I've followed those recommendations and this is what happened. Those sort of things really tell you that you're actually looking every time for the opportunities to help those clients more. Um, and I also see the opposite. The poorest performers invariably don't bring cases to the sessions. They don't write anything down. Now, there, there can be different learning. People have got different ways of learning. So I am making generalizations here. Um, but I do find, as a general rule, those, those physios, those clinicians that I mentor, the ones that seem to do the best are the ones and have got a growth mindset, are constantly looking, how can they get help to get them better results for each and every client. Um, and this is not just me saying it. There is in mentoring research, because um, I did actually start my PhD on this. I started, I will say I started, I only did a few weeks and then I realized, what am I doing? I'm looking at doing, I'm looking at restarting it next year. But um, I, re I started doing my literature review and there is good research to show that Clinicians, this, clinicians who are more willing and accepting of feedback and actually, as I've written here, intentionally seeking out are actually the most competent. So there is, a, there is research. It's not just James Schomburg saying this. This is, um, um, there is research to, to, to back that up. And if we just think about common sense, I think a lot of senior uh, clinicians who've got teams would see that the, the, the clinicians that they have in their teams, uh, usually the the usual, not always, but the usual traits are those, are the ones who are usually the most competent of the clinicians. And, um, you know, I've said that before, the more we learn, the more we realise we don't, how little we do know. Uh, and if someone doesn't ask questions or they're not thinking very much or they think they already know it all, they're warning signs to me um, that this is somebody who doesn't have a mindset of ongoing learning and of being humble. And one of our biggest issues in our profession, Jade, is uh, you probably have heard that is the attrition rate of physios. Um, you know, they're, they're dropping off very early. And I think it's because they haven't been in an environment where there is a, that learning environment in, is actually all encompassing around them. And so it's much harder often when you're a lone person with that mindset, if the rest of the team doesn't have that mindset, if you work in a practice that doesn't have this supportive mentoring collegiate atmosphere, it is harder to um, to be this sort of have these sort of traits. And I think if you, however, if you work in an environment where the opposite occurs, where you do have a learning environment where there is that collegiate atmosphere, it's easier to develop these traits and enjoy your work beyond just that first two years, which often seems to be what happens. Um, Last thing was, and going to that case, that case study, is I think listening, really listening, you know, um, listening to your clients, 
if you do spend the time to actually reflect on your clients, you can be amazed at the learnings you get from each client. Uh, and I think that's the hidden gem. A lot of physios, particularly, and I can only speak for physios, but they're always got their nose in the books. They're always quoting journals. And, and don't get me wrong, ongoing learning like that is really useful. But you've also got those clients in front of you who are, who are the N equals one case studies that you're dealing with every day that actually going to give you, I believe, even more richer information. And even the feedback when it's not great, if you don't help somebody, if somebody doesn't follow your recommendations, that feedback itself is a great learning opportunity to think about what if I, what could I do? What can I do to uh, change that next time? As I said, I'm happy to go through this case study, but it's whether or not you want to go through this now or whether you want me to, whether you've got some questions for me. Yeah, no. Oh, I thought I was on mute. Um, no, that's wonderful. Look, I've just been scribbling away here. That, like, There's so many takeaways from that. I love that glass of water concept in the interview. Yeah. I think I'm going to start that. Um, and, it, and it is, it's, it's ways of drawing out character in people in an environment that, you know, where people know they're being watched. But it's the, that concept of the little things. It's, it's really nice. And curiosity came up a lot, just that ability to want to learn and, and all of those sorts of things. And I love that idea of the growth mindset. Jill Klein, who heads psychology and leadership at Melbourne University, she's doing a lot of work in that with medical students at the moment. And a recent study that she was looking into found that these, these students, and we probably see this across all health professionals, are so used to being top of their game, A-grade students, you know, very diligent in their study. So when they come out and they get their own patient and they actually apply a treatment plan or a medication, particularly in emergency and something doesn't go well, they have found that they sort of crumble under pressure because they, they're not used to failing. They, that perfectionism notion here, they have done a lot of study now trying to work out how we teach growth mindset to people who through their entirety of their adolescent and almost adult academic life until they get into their career struggle with that concept that they might have done something wrong so they're talking a lot about what you suggest in that workplace of normalizing failure and understanding that we need to talk about failure more so that it's not something that we shy away from and has sort of that stigma attached so before I you know we step across into that case I'd love to know from you how do you in a clinical setting how do you teach a growth mindset like can we actually teach is it just through learned behavior through mirroring and watching other people or how how do you teach a growth mindset or how do you teach humble great question i i, I think some of it's unteachable i think you know some of it's definitely environmental and, and when i say genetic you know when i and when i say environmental what's what's predated your your time with that individual um you know i humbleness is certainly uh something that was really taught to me as a as a child by my parents to never be boastful you know, it, was, it was something that was ingrained in me um and i think that would be the same with a lot of people you know how you're brought up can really have a big impact on that so i think part of it is harder to teach and that's what i particularly i think i look at it a lot in the interview process because i i say to my um applicants you can, I can teach you how to understand back pain better. I can teach you even ways to communicate better 
although that's harder, but what I can't teach you are your values and your beliefs. And uh, those things are much harder to change. Now, but it doesn't mean they can't change it. And I, I think for me, the things that I think can change that is the environment you, you work with in the clinics. I think if you work in a clinic, as I said, that embraces learning as one of its primary reasons um, and grow, a growth mindset of your individual staff, then you're on the journey to creating that sort of, um, it, it sparks off each other. I know with, and I can, I can talk about my two practices, I've got 25 physios working for me and we, we're, it's, a, it's a great place to work in, it's a lot of fun, but it's also hard. You know, we say that in the interview and I think we tell them we are a growth mindset practice and we, we tell them straight off that you will have your, um, your results scrutinised. We're going to go through, we're going to do our best to make you the best clinician you can be. That's one of our absolute goals because if you're a great clinician, you help the owner, that's me, but you also help your clients, but you also help yourself become a clinician of choice. Even if it's not staying with us, you're going to become a clinician of choice when you, where you go elsewhere. So we will mentor and support you, but mentoring support you isn't just putting your arm around you. Now, sometimes you need that, but sometimes it's also um, challenging you and the way you think, the way you uh, behave, the way you treat. And so it can be confronting too. Mm. And so, I, I totally agree. You know, I say a lot in, in my Good to Great in Private Practice course, you can't teach a personality. Right. Uh, but And it is, it's one of those concepts, humble, much like gratitude and empathy. Not only is it a skill that we learn environmentally over time, it's also an attribute and a trait. So it's one of those beautiful words that's actually wrapped up in sort of almost like a virtue, so to speak. And I can understand there where elements of that have been carried along with us through our life, which make us who we are. But I think it is that mirrored behaviour, you know, being able to work with a mentor and somebody who can show them the way and just watch and learn by example is is really important that's part of what the greatest leaders do is actually set the standard so i think you can probably learn it exactly as you're suggesting is just by watching an amazing culture around you and and what they do because you know i yeah i i tend to agree that you need to watch it and be in that environment absolutely and as you were saying it's a sign of strength I love that. It's, it's not a sign of weakness. And, you know, I, I like to always say to, to my team, knowing your weaknesses is your biggest strength. Yeah. And I think humble does fall into that and understanding that you don't know it all and therefore do, you know, exactly as you suggested, learning from your patients. So, you know, this case that you talk about, it obviously was pretty powerful for you in, in your learning. Well, it's a very, it's a very, um, recent one and it just stood out for me that the where I guess my concerns where I'm seeing our profession uh, and I can again be interested to hear if it's if it's mirrored in osteopathy too but in our profession where perhaps some of the push towards the book the push, and I say the books I'm not going to say evidence-based pr practice because it what this clinician thought they were applying it but in fact this is a danger with not being humble is when you think you know something and you actually use it um 
more, I always think sometimes it's more dangerous to know a little bit than it is to know nothing. And this was an example where somebody who thought was obviously well-intentioned, but they were applying what little knowledge they must have had and didn't understand what they were, the root, the truth, the current best practice, but thought they did. And it really horribly backfired on this young guy. So if you're happy for me to talk about it, it's, yeah. a, it's a really interesting case. Yeah. So he, a young boy called Lockie, he's 23. He was a CPA accountant, so a clever young man, played, um, he saw me because I saw his girlfriend and his girlfriend asked me to see him uh, in December last year. And he, oh, January last, this year, sorry. Late last year, he sustained a lifting injury. So he got a, he got a pain, a developed low back pain lifting uh, at work. He was moving some files at um, the large employer he was working at and developed back pain. Saw a physio, a young uh, a physio who, um, who uh, this, at this stage, Lockie had acute back pain. And just to give you some frame of reference, no red flags, um, just back pain, buttock pain, bilaterally, but no neurological symptoms, nothing to be alarmed about. The physio started talking about pain science, started telling him that there was no injury in his back, um, all pains in the brain, and you just need to overcome it. And um, started going to some really in-depth pain neurophysiology. Lockie, this is Lockie reflecting back to me. He said, all I wanted him to do was just treat me. He didn't see that as treatment, firstly, which was the, the first warning. But he followed this guy for it, kept on persevering with this physio for um, a good two months. Um, gave him some exercises, the exercises aggravated. Um, and to cut a long story short, he got worse. So the physio said, well, I need to send you off to your GP. Sent him off to his GP and the GP said, we need to do a CAT scan. And I'm sure with a lot of us hear these stories. So 23-year-old, he had a CAT scan, which showed a disbulge, minor disbulge at L5-S1. And um, there was no nerve root impingement and... Uh, went back to the physio with the scan. He said, well, that explains it. You've got to disbulge and you will need to go to, it's beyond me. I can't treat it. And Lockie said, well, you, what about trying some hands-on? He said, there's no evidence for hands-on physiotherapy. So he said, no, you need to go off to your doctor and get a corticosteroid injection. So he went to his doctor who basically did what the physio did, did a corticosteroid injection and no surprise, it didn't help him. So if we just reflect back, the evidence for um, pain neurophysiology education for an acute back, last time I read, there is none. It doesn't mean that you're not going to give absolutely critical advice and information about activity, restoring normal activity. That's, you know, that's, tier, that's level one evidence. But that really was never told to Lockie. He hadn't actually changed any of his activities at all. He wasn't instructed that. He was just getting told to think all pains in his brain. And every time he said, look, I try and ignore it. Like uh, the physio said, I go and lift because he said, there's no harm lifting. I go and lift and I go into spasm again. And I couldn't walk again properly for, for an hour or two after. And he said, I was telling myself all my pains in my brain, all my pains in the brain. He started becoming anxious and depressed. From, all, from trying to keep these affirmations that this physio was trying to tell him. 
Then the second thing is there is no evidence, as most people know, for corticosteroid injections into the lumbar spine unless there is associated disc prolapsing with nevric compression. Then it's got, you know, second level evidence. So this physio was telling him he was off, and he told Lockie he was offering him the best available treatment. And yet everything he was offered wasn't. So this is the danger when you think you know something and you don't. And Lockie was just saying, he told him, he said, I've asked him, just can you put hands on? That's what I thought physios did. And he said, no, it's not what we do these days. I then saw him. And so we're talking now, he was about five months after. And after assessment, he wasn't, he was anxious, anxious about his pain. And he was a bit depressed. He hadn't played footy. His goal was to get back to play footy. He was struggling to, he'd stop working. He works as an accountant in the city. Um, it was a 20-minute drive. He could only tolerate sitting for five minutes. So he was working from home. His employer was a very well-known international accountancy firm who was putting a lot of pressure on him to get back to work face-to-face. And so he was getting more and more distressed about that. So we just set goals. We said, well, let's, what about if we can get you, um, you know, point where you can sit again for 20 minutes could you get to work he said absolutely so let's make that our first goal so i gave him some very simple um, hands-on therapy manual therapy i gave him some associate because it improved him within the visit i then gave him exercises which mirrored those those sessions he came back can we cut a long story short within three visits over a week and a half he was able to go back to work within three weeks he was back training for footy and he's played a whole footy season since now i haven't seen him for four months because there's been no need to but he's now fully recovered all i did was listen to him two things he wanted he wanted reassurance that it wasn't serious he was never told that in fact he was told the opposite from a physio who was actually starting with the non-serious news but he needed affirmations that it wasn't serious now and also telling him that it was okay to move and to do some hands-on he wanted hands-on and to be honest, there was no yellow flags. There was nothing to indicate that he was going to get worse from hands-on therapy. And within the visit, he was markedly better. And it's amazing, as we see with a lot of our clients, when you can get that change in the consult, what that can do to a client's mindset, what that can do to reduce their fear in the first place. So the very thing the physio was trying to treat, he had nothing to give to actually show him to not be fearful. And by the fact that I did some manual therapy and improved his range of motion immediately, gave him reduction of pain, he was now much less fearful, which ironically were the other physio I was trying to do. My message here was be humble enough that if you're not making progress, you need to look beyond what you're currently doing. Also be humble enough to listen to your client. If your client is suggesting some therapies, provided they're not unsafe, provided they're not... Um, non-evidence space there is nothing uh, there is nothing more impactful than applying applying what evidence there is particularly in a situation where a client is going to get benefits in that therapy when they request it and i think it, being humble just gives you that exploratory mode to keep changing now if he hadn't improved i would have kept changing my approach but um this physio just didn't. And I say that I brought this one up because I have seen this more and more often, Jade, and mm. speaking to Kieran and speaking to a lot of other senior clinicians in our profession, we are seeing more and more a lot of people who are getting hands-off early on when hands-on can make a huge impact on reducing the very things that are the 
the pain focused therapists, the therapists that focus on pain management, um, are trying to do. So it's an interesting dichotomy. So that one really hit home for me was really less, really listening to your clients and not assuming also that everybody at five months, six months, even five years, it's all driven by the brain. A lot of it can be driven by tissues. It's a matter of doing a very good assessment to work out where are they on the on that continuum? Are they more driven by the way they think and behave or are they more driven by the tissues? Where are they in that continuum? And apply interventions that actually address that rather than just doing it by a journal, which is what that physio did. And unfortunately, picked even the wrong time frame. Uh, look, I, you know, we, we have this, and it's not, it's not anything new. I mean, I've been in practice for 20 years, this biopsychosocial pattern, but we don't always have to find a psychosocial problem. No. Some things are just attached to pain and pain and, and tissues causing those symptoms without having to, you know, look and interview and, and try and work out all these things. Sometimes if there is a tissue that has been damaged and when that heals and repairs and by whatever means, obviously there's exercise and rehabilitation and strengthening and condition that's all really, really important. But therapeutic touch over my 20 years in practice is so valuable. And, and more than that, just being engaged in that patient's care, that is both practitioner directed and patient focused to get the best result out of the best treatment plan possible. So I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, but this, this leads me down to this concept of feedback. A lot of people shy away from feedback because it is outside our comfort zone. There's an amazing book called The Vein Brain by Cordelia Fine, and I love it because she talks about this concept of our ego winning often. And the reason why we don't put ourselves in a situation of discomfort, which is where we all know growth comes from, is because our ego protects us. We don't want to know that we've done the wrong thing. In actual fact, mm. why would we put ourselves in a situation where we can ask a question and say, hey, did I make you worse when we actually might hear that as a response to confirm that we did? So one of the things that we've got in, in our clinic, and I'm sure you've got something similar, I'd love to know what tools you've got to help drive feedback for clinicians, particularly new graduates or at any experience level. We've got a cancellation register. So basically any patient that comes in that has been given a treatment plan that cancels with no reason at all, and then just disappears. We and our practitioners do a follow-up call, just a courtesy call. It's not a hard sell. It's not a you need to come back. It's just a literally, are you okay, firstly? And, and secondly, is there something I could have done better? Or is there something that you found that didn't work? Or is there something that you had expectations of that you didn't get, which is the reason why you're not coming back? And it was resisted for such a long time. In actual fact, it took me a whole weekend away to get this across the line as a policy with our team that our new patient uh, register and our cancellation register, we had to have these phone calls. And I kept tying it back to this notion of feedback. If you don't ask how you could have done something better or if you'd perhaps done something that may have made somebody worse, God forbid, if you're not asking the question, you're not getting the answer. So you've kind of got this head in the sand mentality. And this goes back to your case. The practitioner that treated or the physio that treated that patient for so long would have got so much value after hearing this patient's story. At any point, I'm interested, and maybe you did or maybe you didn't, 
do you think it was worth this patient actually going back and giving feedback to this physio or do you think you know do we need to have something in place where we do call patients after three or four months just to hear their story you know maybe this physio might have learned this patient's experience and there's so much to gain from that I mean you're we're in a alive educating people on being humble and mentoring maybe we need to implement some more processes in people's clinics where we actively seek feedback and how do you do that in your clinic yeah another great questions so first thing i think um it is hard to get feedback because um our, our profession a lot of our profession are personality types because they joined the profession because they love helping people and they're warm and empathic. But as you know, a lot of people are empathic. Their biggest fear is confrontation. So it is always a challenge for a certain group of my team and teams that I mentor to get that sort of feedback because it, it makes them uncomfortable. Um, so that's one thing we've had to talk with our staff about that. So I'll talk about that in a second, but the biggest thing I think is to actually be even more proactive. And this question I, I teach to all of my students and I teach to all of our, um, our, our clinicians too, is to ask, and I, we've got it as a template, every second appointment we ask, you should be asking your client, how do you feel, feel you're going with your recovery? Because I'd rather actually have that uncomfortable question whilst they're in the rooms because it's much harder to get that feedback once you've lost them you know once they've got you know once they've cancelled and as you said have given no reason or have to check their roster there's the classic one i have to check their roster because most people don't want to be confrontational either they they won't say the worse because that means that you know they, they know they're going to follow them up so you know it's reading people's minds to a degree but i say look rather than waiting for that to happen why don't you ask those questions ask that question how do you feel you're going because you're going to when you actually leave it open-ended like that the client's going to be forced to make tell you something and you're better off knowing before somebody cancels so you've got an opportunity to change it because once they've actually left your practice they're probably not going to come back they're probably going to go and see somebody else or do nothing um, and either way that's not great for the out not great outcome so i'd much rather be proactive and, and try and prevent it happening in the first place but look Despite me saying that, I've got a lot of high-S personalities in my team, and they—I know some of them. Some of them are great at doing it; others aren't. And so we do have exactly what you do, too, Jade. We have a—we do a phone call list. Our—it's automatically generated by our software that um, they cancel. The admin team have taught you must get a reason from your client if you can, yeah, unless they're ringing up at night to ring up and leave a message overnight. You know, just say, look, can I tell the physio you know, why you've cancelled? And that gives them a richness of information. So at least it makes that phone call less challenging. So I think the more your admin team can support the physio team with really good information about the cancellation, the better it is and the easier it is for the physio to get over their fear and make that call. Um, we also coach our physios how to do those calls. So we spend a lot of time in induction going over making those calls and actually you know, we actually do role plays, which are really awkward, particularly for those people who don't like confrontation. They hate role plays, but it's far better to do a role play than actually to do it, um, 
you know, live and then they progress to doing them on the phone with me listening and then doing it on their own. So I think I've always found with personalities that like confrontation, coach them, help them find ways to actually do it and always have a chance to debrief and go over their learnings again. Mm-hmm. Um, then it becomes less fearful for them and they're, less, they're more likely just to see it as part of their day-to-day. And we found when we started doing all of these steps, it's not one of them alone that seems to help, but I think it's all of them combined. Yeah. Um, that, that notion of, of scripting, a lot of people shy away from that because they see it as inauthentic, whereas I couldn't agree more. It's like, it's like training for a football game. You have to train so that when your skills are actually needed, you can actually deliver them. Otherwise, you're kind of throwing these sometimes new graduates to the walls because they're not prepared. And sometimes you do have to do that role playing so that you know exactly what to say at the right time about and, and also taking it back to the comfort level of that patient. Everything we do and everything we should we say, if it's tied back to the comfort level and the confidence, get it, gaining confidence from a patient, then, you know, why shouldn't we role play these things? You know, one of the things off the back of some of our questions is expectations. Similar to the questions that you ask is we simply ask, are, are you where you expected to be right now? And sometimes it's not even the practitioner's fault. It's just simply that the patient's expectations are somewhere outside or there's a big education hole there that needs to be filled so that their expectations are a little bit more realistic. But you're exactly right. You have to ask those questions, but framing it in a way that neither person makes uncomfortable to draw information out. I totally agree. Yeah, I think um, it's far better for for if you're a clinician who doesn't like confrontation to have to be scripted on on responses because then um one of the biggest hardest things to that sort of personality is better think on your feet and you know so whereas if you've actually practiced the responses that you're likely to get and the way you answer those responses you're going to you're going to be much more comfortable and i you know other personalities can actually roll with the punches and can actually you know, work with uh, unknowns and really quite happy to run off whatever the client says. But I find most physiotherapists anyway are much don't like thinking on their feet and they find that hard. And I think the more they're actually given ways to respond, because there's only X number of ways people usually respond. So you just go through how, what do you think they're going to say to you and how, how will you respond to that? And I, we, that reduces the fear. And I think that's the critical point. If you're actually going to implement those systems, then make sure part of it is educating those clinicians on those normal responses. And you find it a lot easier then to actually make those calls without them causing you know, a minor heart attack every time you do it. And you, I mean, you were saying that you, you work with so many students and for the most part, most are pretty open to learning. If they've mm bought a ticket to a course or they've come along and given up their weekend, then they are open to learning and evolving and gaining that mentoring. One of my last questions, I've kind of been saving it to the end for you, is when you're presented with that ego. When and what do you do? Because we, we've, we've all had them amidst us and maybe we've even been them ourselves at some point, depending on what the topic of conversation is. But you do get some professionals who believe that they know it all or they've done it before or they can't be taught or a little bit even more so rather than being confident in in saying I don't need to learn it they're a bit more dismissive 
in going through the process and cutting corners. How do you deal with ego? <laughs> um, probably not the way you're probably gonna <laughs> not the way you'd like to hear it. Um, I'll, I, I, it does vary. Um, it's finding out. It, the first thing what I would do is find out is have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them. Um, whether I'm mentoring them externally, and I've done that before, like where I work with practice, because I work with practices across Australia, and um, when I pick up somebody has that sort of, and that might be my belief too, is find out you know, why are they putting up barriers? Why do they? Why am I perceiving that they are arrogant or ego-driven? Because sometimes it's not that at all. So I never go and assume that, but it's enough. If I see that behaviour enough, I will speak to the practice owner um and usually what we do is either they will take them on themselves to have a chat and that usually sorts it out or i will speak to them or the three of us will get together because i personally like i said first thing i want to say it's not if it's just not my perception the second thing is um often they don't not even aware that that's how they behave they're not that's not their intent it's how they're being perceived but it's not their intent and i find often when we reflect back to what we're seeing that changes the behavior there are those though and i'm talking and i'm talking about externally but also internally there are those whose behavior changes very short term but then they go back to that behavior again and certainly when it's my own staff that becomes much easier when it's my own staff um we start talking about how you know we're a team and and we are a very much a team-based practice or practices and this behavior is not one that suits us in a team i find if, if it just keeps happening over and over again they usually self-select themselves out jade and also i find that externally when i mentor practices and i've seen this with lots of times after lots of chats not like we dip after chats with them one-on-one -on -one, after chats with them with myself and the practice owner and themselves they realize that they are probably not the right fit for that practice. So to me, it's hard for me to say because my practices, I've intentionally chosen people who aren't ego-driven. Now, there are times where you make mistakes in recruitment, but I've got better over the years on how I recruit, that if I do still make a mistake, and I still make plenty of mistakes, but if I make one with recruitment, then they'll hate the sort of environment they work in because they're constantly getting scrutinized anyway. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's more finding out if it's perception rather than reality. That's the first thing. And then just finding out, you know, there's the three groups are this group who once they find out, think, oh, that's not how I was, that's not what I meant. Another group changed their behavior and it's when they realize maybe they're being a bit of a, a drop kick at the time. And there's a third group who actually you're not going to change and this you can't change that and that's fine it's just they're probably not suited to a practice which has a team mindset yeah and yeah. we are we are seeing generational change more and more mm. influences on social media there's a lot of even just video footage on tiktok of manipulations and techniques sort of being put out there and used as a almost a lead generator for for marketing and getting patients and having a, a bit of a a following this is all very very different for for us for what we call the old school 
practitioners who I like to kind of move along with the generational challenge. And I think it's also very, very important to offer different sources of education, but also has come this new breed of the importance of mentoring. And mentoring is important at every stage. I think you'll agree, whether you're a new graduate and you can even have practitioners, as we were talking about offline yesterday, who are mentors in two and three years out in practice. How do you define a mentor and who you need at the time? I mean, obviously, it's somebody who can just share an experience that you can learn from at any stage, or do you think you'd need different levels of mentoring? How do you set that up in your clinic? So we have, excuse me, we've right from informal mentoring. I mean, when you're in a, because we recruit people who want to be team players, who want to be in that collegiate environment where you are sharing clients, are doing, having two clinicians in the room with with patients at times, at times. Um, Invariably, a lot of the, the ones who more take leadership, who, who start aspiring to be seen as an expert and want to actually do it for the right intent, they invariably become sort of informal mentors anyway. And you see it all the time, and I'm sure a lot of practices do, where you see, um, you know, a younger new graduate in with somebody who's two, three years out. Because <clears throat> it's much less confrontational to be with a, a, a peer, a peer they respect because they've got a couple more years on their experience built, but also not as confronting as speaking to somebody who's got a more formal role. Mm. Um, invariably, they, those people, those ones who start as informal mentors, we start identifying and we look at those people to become more... Um, like quality, what title we, we give them that role called clinical mentors. So we actually have, oh, probably six or seven, maybe eight now, physios who actually in my team who are assigned roles called clinical mentors. And so all of our younger staff rotate with them every three months. Yep. And so we've, we've, they've started by being informal because I'm always a big believer that leadership um, is something that you, you uh, do before you're actually given the title. And so we we identify that, uh, um, myself and my senior team identify those people, those young clinicians who are already assuming leadership positions without being asked. Because where I've always found, and I found out the hard way, if you give somebody a, a role when they, just because they want it, rather than because they've already already been doing that before they've actually been given the formal title, um, I've always made mistakes and I've learned a lot from that. So we look for that and we've create formal positions. So we have, as I said, eight mentors who rotate, all the young graduates rotate every three months and they get exposed to a different style. We ne- I never enforce a style that they have to be. And that's the, that's the richness of having eight different mentors. They've all got different ways of getting, of, of learning um, and teaching. And that can be just really good than rather than just hearing me speak all the time. Um, you know, I'm sure my team would get bored of me very quickly if it was just me. Um, and so it's great having that other options. And staff love it too. It's not just for the younger physios who um, to help them have that sort of intermediary mentorship, but the physios who are actually doing the mentoring love stepping up. It gives them, uh, it makes them realise that their job is much more than just the day-to-day treating. Yeah. So there's so many advantages. So that's how we do it at our practice. Yeah. And I love that. I love that it's like multi-level almost now, but it it starts with leadership. It does. And I think 
you, you often see that you can have a great clinician out there who's been in practice for 20 years, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're great at passing on that information. Not at all, no. And we, you know, we see this often, which is why it, it's why we're privileged to have people like yourself who are great in education and come from great clinical background teaching these courses, which is a great segue for us to be able to finish <laughs> up today. I, how, do, how do people find out more about you? I mean, obviously you've been doing this for such a long time and your, your courses are so reputable now. How do we find your courses? How do we connect with you? Thanks, Jay. That's very kind. <laughs> um, look, I've got, uh, where are we? So on here, I've got, um, we, we've got a Facebook group called, and I'm, my company's called The Second Visit. So um, please, any of you who are clinicians, as long as you're a physio or osteopath or a chiropractor, you're welcome to apply. Um, we, in that website, sorry, in the Facebook, we do regular clinical, we give regular clinical ideas, my team who are in the second visit. Um, we also do a team and individual mentoring. So we mentor individual clinicians and practice owners, as well as team clinical mentoring. And one of the things that we're most excited about is training clinicians to become mentors, um, because I think the, that's going to become more and more necessary over the years. Every second ad I see now has leapt on that, has leapt on that and you know, you'll see great mentoring. But what we try to do is give you structure on how to become a mentor and what tools should you be doing? What do you do when you hit roadblocks? So we run a course on actually training clinicians to become mentors. We also do run a lot of clinical courses, um, clinical reasoning, um, treatment planning, manual therapy, and, and area-specific things there too, which um, we won't plug too often in the Facebook group, but it's there if anybody's interested in attending our courses. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see any of you, even if you just join, it's nothing to join, uh, costs nothing to join, and um, we hope that you know some of those posts that we do will resonate with you and at least be great learning. And I know a lot of practices are using some of our videos to actually become points to discuss in their, their own professional development sessions too. So I think that's, uh, yeah. yeah, that's one of the advantages of getting this stuff is you can use this for a discussion point with your, with your team. Yeah, that's wonderful. And look, you can, you know, even just in this last hour alone, we can hear your passion and dedication and love for, for teaching and facilitating growth. So it's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And Thanks, Jane. I, I really look forward to uh, thrashing this out more with you again in the future. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me, inviting me. Thanks for that. Thanks. Okay. For Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.